All right, thank you to our praise team once again for leading us in worship. I, as I was singing the songs this morning, I'm just thinking about, obviously, the words and what they mean. And sometimes I think we can get caught up in just singing because it's a pretty melody or something that we like to sing or whatever. But I just want to encourage you, just when we're singing, it's why we put the words up on the screen so that we can all uh, relish in the truths of these songs that we sing. And so thank you this morning for uh, leading us in worship and song to our praise team. It's been a busy week. Uh, this past Wednesday, we had our packing party for Operation Christmas Child, and we had a small army of people here. It was a great evening. We packed, I think, uh, that evening uh, around 160 or so boxes, and then uh, others took boxes with them to pack on their own to bring back today. And so uh, we're probably going to be real close to our goal of 200 boxes, and so thank you to our church family for that. Many of you contributed finances so that that would be possible for us to do that. Many of you brought in items for uh, us to put in the boxes, and thank you for everybody who came out Wednesday. I mean, we did all this in like an hour, and so we had, I can't even tell you how many people were here, but it was a, it was a very fine-tuned machine, and thank you again to those who led this project. Uh, it was a it was a neat thing for our church to be a part of. We also had a wedding yesterday. Darren and Caitlin were remarried, and uh, we're really happy for that. It's a testament to the grace of God, and so uh, we're so happy for them and for our family, and so you'll have to uh, congratulate them when they're here next week for that. Well, this past week, uh, Kathy and I made the long trek out to Illinois to visit with our family and friends. And is always the case uh, when we go out to visit, our, our week was absolutely jam-packed with seeing people. Every day that we were there, it seemed like we were with a different crowd. And I, I saw people that I haven't seen in a long, long time. And of course, we always have a great time when we're out there, but it was a reminder for me and for Kathy that the Christian life is all about people. It really is. It's all about people. It's all about relationships. I've always liked the, the JOY acronym, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and you. That's our priority system in the Christian life, right? Jesus is preeminent. We put others before ourselves, and then we come in third place. And there's no better example in the Scriptures of someone who more perfectly practiced that JOY acronym than John the Baptist. This morning, we're not only going to learn more about what made him tick, but we're also going to evaluate where we're at in the Christian life, what our priorities are, what occupies our time, what makes us tick. And so this morning, we want to answer the question, who are you? Who are you? So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. We're working our way through the gospel of John as a church. And so we are going to be in verses 19 through 28 today. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said to him, well, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, well, I am a voice 
of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am unworthy to tie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, I haven't seen in our area one of these kinds of stores, but they're, they're cropping up all over in uh, central Illinois where we're originally from. And these are uh, Amazon return stores. So apparently Amazon is such a wealthy corporation and company that if you order something from Amazon and it comes to your home and you don't like it, you can take it back. And apparently it's sent to some sort of third party and they can resell these items, these items that you ordered from Amazon uh, at a highly discounted rate. And so we were at one of those stores there in Springfield and it's like a feeding frenzy. I mean, you can imagine uh, dozens and dozens of tables and bins full of recently returned items. They, this store restocks on Friday, so everything in the store uh, is $8, and then the cost goes down a dollar each day until they restock again. We bought eight things, uh, just in case you're wondering, eight things that probably totaled somewhere around four or $500 we bought for 64 bucks. I mean, it's amazing what these stores offer, but you, it's, it's a fight. I mean, you're in there with these other people, and everyone's digging through these bins, and you're looking for deals, and oh my. Uh, so if they do have these around here, it's kind of fun, but then, you know, wear your shoulder pads. But there, there was a guy in the store when we were there, and he looked, uh, he looked homeless. He was all disheveled unshaven, wrinkled clothes. He looked just like he needed a good meal and a, and a hot shower. Well, somehow, <laughs> I mean, there are 100 people or more in the store at this time. Somehow, my brother gets into a conversation with this guy, and, and uh, come to find out, he was both a lawyer and a, a doctor. And according to him, which I don't know why he would tell my brother this, but according to him, his uh, family's worth was around $600 million dollars. If you looked at this guy, you would never have believed anything that he said based on his appearance. But weirdly, we watched him walk out of the store and he got into a brand new, shiny, big Mercedes. So maybe what he said about himself was true, but it was kind of a reminder that it's always difficult to formulate opinions on appearance alone, right? And my guess is this is exactly how the people viewed John the Baptist back in the day. By all appearances, this man was a mess. He didn't dress like other people. He didn't look like other people. He didn't act like other people. But he was a man chosen by God to be the forerunner of Jesus. And so with all this in mind, it's certainly more understandable that he repeatedly was asked the question that we saw in the text, who are you? And I think that's a legitimate question. Who in the world are you? You don't look like anybody else that we know. We got a 
little bit of help in answering this question as the Apostle Paul spoke of John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8. So if you take a look at that, just a page over, verse 6 of John 1, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, let me remind you as we go through the Gospel of John, when we see the word John, the proper name John, in the Gospel of John, it's always referring to John the Baptist. Now, John the Apostle, the one whom God loved, is the author of the Gospel of John, but he doesn't refer to himself by name. So whenever the word John is used, he's referring to John the Baptist. And so there, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And so we learn here that John the Baptist was a man who was sent by God to come as a witness to testify about the light, who is Jesus, the promised Messiah. John the Baptist was not the light. He was sent by God to testify about the light. In other words, John the Baptist's ministry was to lay the groundwork for the public ministry of Jesus, where Jesus would prove himself to be God in the flesh, and would go to the cross of Calvary to be the perfect sacrifice that God would accept to pay the penalty for our sins, all who would believe in Jesus will be saved. And so John the Baptist was a man, just like us. But he was a man with a mission. And his mission was to tell the world to repent of their sin because the Messiah is coming. Think about his mission He was sent before Jesus to announce the coming of Jesus. And yet he was so unique and he he was doing all these things and he was baptizing people and and everybody was intrigued by this guy, this homeless looking man. Who are you? They wanted to know. Well, John wasn't there to talk about himself. He, he, he was on a mission. His mission wasn't to talk about himself as to who he was. His mission was to talk about Jesus. God in the flesh, who would come after him. He was the trailblazer. He was the front man. He was the advance man for Jesus. And so as we look at verses 19 through 28 today, we get this mental picture of what's going on here. Here we have this guy who's unlike any other man in Israel. He looked like a homeless guy. But he's attracting these huge crowds of people. Thousands and thousands of people are intrigued by this man. And many, after listening to his message, are being baptized uh, by him upon repentance from their sin. And so here comes the prim and proper priests and Levites to check this guy out. One of our high school girls was in the hospital, and so uh, one of our elders and I, Bruce and I, went up to see her uh, the other day. And um, so we had a nice visit. She's home, by the way, and it's really glad to we're really glad to hear that she's on the mend. But we were there at the hospital, and we visited with her for about an hour. And then uh, as we were leaving, uh, we got in the elevator, and, uh, you know, we were dressed casually, uh, shorts and a 
you know, pull over and we get in the elevator and this gal looks at us and we had clergy uh, stickers on our shirt and she goes, you guys are the coolest looking clergy I've ever seen. <laughs> and we looked at each other and thought, boy, the bar is really, really low. <laughs> wow. But that's what she said to us. Here comes these well-dressed men. We're the priests and the Levites were sent to you by the Pharisees and we're here to find out who you really are. And so the self-proclaimed religious leaders of the day had come down from their ivory towers in Jerusalem to confront John the Baptist and to seek to learn more about this eccentric man that they'd heard so much about. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to examine the testimony of John the Baptist as he answers their questions. He answers the priests and the Levites' questions, and we see all these questions piling up here in verse 19 and verses 21 and 22. And so as we hone in on these questions this morning, The religious leaders were well aware of the Old Testament prophecies that foretold of the future coming of the Messiah, right? Old Testament passages like Genesis 3.15, like Genesis 12.3, like Isaiah 7.14, Micah 5.2, Hosea 11.1. Anyone who was a student of the Old Testament would know that there were these prophecies about the future Messiah. And John knew that. He himself had been born into a priestly family. You remember that John the Baptist was the miracle child of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest from the tribe of Levi who served the Lord during the reign of Herod in Judea. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was a descendant of Aaron who was the brother of Moses, and he was the first high priest. And so both Zechariah and Elizabeth were followers of God. So you remember the story, Zechariah and Elizabeth had always wanted to have children, but she was up in years, she was barren, which meant she couldn't physically have children anyway. But that all changed when the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah while he was performing his special once-in-a-lifetime priestly duties in the temple. And I want to go back to Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go back to Luke chapter 1. And let's learn some more about this particular encounter that Zechariah has with the angel Gabriel. All the way back to Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias, or Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, you remember Elizabeth and Mary were cousins, right? Maybe second cousins, because obviously Elizabeth was much older than Mary. So we don't know exactly how old Mary was when she had Jesus, but she probably was a teenager. And so Elizabeth is up in years. She's beyond childbearing years, so there's quite a difference in age between the two cousins. But Zacharias and Elizabeth, verse uh, 6, were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. 
Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of the division, according to the, the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And you remember that the Nazarite vow included some oaths. One was to never cut your hair, and secondly, to never drink alcohol. And so John the Baptist was one of three named in Scripture who took this lifelong Nazarite vow. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord So as we go back to John chapter 1 and verse 19, we find the first of a series of questions that the priests and Levites ask John the Baptist. And here in verse 19, and then again repeated in verse 22, they ask him, who are you? We want to know. Well, we've been sent by the Pharisees to come and to find out. Just tell us, who are you? This was at the forefront of what these religious leaders wanted to know. And so they come with some guesses, and John denies all of their guesses. Here in verses 20 and 25, 20 and 21, we find three denials. Verse 20 says this, And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, And then they ask him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. The word Christ here, by the way, is from the Greek word Christos. It's more of a title than it is a name. We, We often say Jesus Christ, right? And essentially, it's Jesus the Christ. Notice here in the text, are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? That's what Christ means, the anointed one. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that was foretold of old? Are you the one that the scriptures say will one day come? Are you Christos, Christ, the anointed one? And he says, no. No, I am not. Now, we need to understand here that it was highly unusual for a virtually unknown man like John the Baptist to garner so much popularity in in such a short period of time. He was unknown virtually, right? Remember, he was the man in the wilderness. He was the guy that grew up in the desert. He was the guy that ate locusts and honey, had a camel-haired 
jacket that he wore around. But word had gotten around about this guy. Word had gotten around as to all that he was saying and doing. And so there's this great stirring among the people. And so the religious leaders had to go and to find him to inquire as to who he is. Because most certainly the people were asking the priests and Levites about him and they didn't have an answer. And so they need to find out for themselves. Perhaps they thought, you know, this is the promised Messiah, the one whom the Jews had been waiting for, the one who would deliver their people from the rule of the Romans and would usher in peace and prosperity for the people of Israel. Perhaps this is the one sent from God to fulfill this special promise from him. But without hesitation, John the Baptist quickly denies that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And so the religious leaders go to guest number two, right? They ask him, are you Elijah? After all, there were some similarities, right? John the Baptist was from the wilderness. He brought with him a fiery message of judgment. But in verse 21, he issues his second denial. He says, no, I'm not Elijah either. Strike two. As we considered several weeks back when we looked at verses six through eight, This denial seems to contradict what Jesus would later say about John the Baptist. Jesus would later say in Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 17, that John was the Elijah that was prophesied back in Malachi chapter 4. And you remember from the passage that we read in Luke chapter 1 that the angel who predicted John's birth to, to Zechariah cited the same prophecy and said that John would be the forerunner of Jesus and he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so why does John deny that he is Elijah? And I think mainly because he wasn't physical Elijah. Most likely because he wanted Jesus' name to increase and himself to decrease, which is exactly what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3 and verse 30, right? He must increase and I must decrease. Technically, he wasn't physical Elijah, but I think it's clear from what we can see in Scripture that he was most certainly Elijah-like, And I believe that was indeed the fulfillment of the prophecy from Malachi chapter 4. So the religious leaders keep working their way down their list of guesses, and then they ask him if he is the prophet. And so when they ask him if he was the prophet, they're referring to the prophet that Moses had predicted back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, where Moses said there, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So the Jews believed that Deuteronomy 18.15 was referring to this separate prophet, this additional prophet. But when we go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, in Acts chapter 7, and verse 37, we find that the, the, the reference in Deuteronomy 18.15 was a reference to Jesus himself. And so they're out of guesses. John says, no, I am neither the Christ nor Elijah, nor am I the prophet. And so they're out of guesses. So they say in verse 22, then who are you? We got nothing. 
We got nothing. We, 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 we've asked our questions. We don't know who you are, so please tell us so we can give some sort of answer to the Jewish leaders who had sent them. And this leads to two affirmations. So John the Baptist is about to give them an answer. We, we find it here in verse 23. Look at verse 23. After they come to the end of their guesses, in verse 23, he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet had said. So the, the first affirmation from, the John, from John the Baptist is that he tells them that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And that's where the quote from verse 23 comes from. He's not the Christ. He's not physical Elijah. He's not the prophet mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. And again, John the Baptist is deflecting attention away from himself and on to Christ, the anointed one. I find it interesting here that he says that he is a voice. See that? He didn't say he's the voice. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. He says he's a voice. Again, I think he's emphasizing that he really is a nobody. He's just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's just a mouthpiece of the one who is so much greater than he There's so much attention, I think, given to people in this life. And some people crave it. Some people want to be the center of attention. Some people love that they're popular. I tell you, the more I see in the greater church at large, it seems that a lot of people can't handle popularity. How many popular Christians have fallen in recent years. I mean, almost every month we're finding another popular Christian who thinks that they're really something. Hey, I've built this ministry empire. I've got a television show. I've got a radio program. I've got a podcast. I write books. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. No. No. That's not who we are. That's not what we're to be about. It's not about us. We're a bunch of nobodies. But we worship and praise and follow a somebody. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was just a voice. <laughs> he was just a voice. Nothing special. This brings us to the second affirmation. After they ask him, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet, then why are you baptizing people in water? And it's a good question. They're trying to figure it out. And here is his response in verses 26 through 28. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John the Baptist essentially says, I am no big deal. 
But the one who comes after me, he's a really big deal. You don't know him yet, but I am so far less than him, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Who would untie the sandals of another person? A menial servant, maybe? At least someone who's intentionally trying to serve somebody with dirty, stinky feet? All the paths and all the roadways were dirt. As they would travel through the mountainous areas around Jerusalem, and they would go from here to there. I mean, can you imagine how grody, you know what that word means, right? How gross their feet would get. Nasty feet wearing these sandals that were handmade by some cobbler. And John says, I'm not even worthy to reach down to your nasty, dirty feet and untie your sandals for you. Sometimes I think we all need a similar dose of humility as it relates to who we really are. Turn with me back to Luke chapter 3. You know that there are parallel passages in Scripture, and so sometimes one of the Gospels will give a little bit more detail about something. And so uh, I just want to turn back to Luke chapter 3 once again before we finish this out today. But Luke chapter 3, look at verse 7. So this is a reference here of uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. Verse 7, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you snakes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then if you drop down to verses 15 through 17, now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize with water, but one who is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He gives us a little bit more there, right? So he distinguishes himself between him and what he's doing with his baptism, and Jesus with what he is doing in relation to spiritual baptism, right? So John practiced physical baptism, and so he would baptize people after the repentance from sin. And this is what we do as a church. It's one of the ordinances of the church. Two ordinances, the the Lord's Supper and baptism, Christian baptism. And so we are credo baptists. You've heard of pedo-baptism. That's pedo means baby. So there's a, a number of uh, denominations who baptize babies. So a baby is born, and they baptize that baby when they're really little. Well, that baby has not professed Christ. He's not trusted in Jesus Christ. The scriptures are very clear that baptism is to be based upon a creed, credo-baptism. What is your creed? I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I have trusted in Christ 
for the forgiveness of sin. He has saved me from my sin. Therefore, I want to publicly proclaim this. At the root of baptism is the idea of identification. And so we want to identify as a follower of Jesus Christ. So John is physically baptizing people, which is exactly what he should do. But he didn't save anybody, did he? He didn't save a soul. But there's one who will come after him. And you remember that John the Baptist is only six months older than Jesus. Right? He's only six months older than Jesus. So it's not like he had this long-term ministry ahead of Jesus. Maybe a year, maybe a little more than a year, But Jesus didn't begin his public ministry until he was 30 years old. So his public ministry was three years. John the Baptist was before him. And he says, when Jesus comes, the baptism's going to look different. Yes, there's still going to be baptism in water, but that doesn't save anyone. What saves people is the Spirit of God. And he will baptize those people who have trusted in him with the Spirit of God. And as God's people, we possess the Spirit of God. We're empowered to live the Christian life by God through the Spirit who lives within us. We couldn't do it on our own. The Spirit empowers us to live the Christian life, to be obedient to God in this life. We can learn a lot from the ministry of John the Baptist. Certainly none of us have the profile of a man like him, but all of us live in a world that's watching us, and I don't think we realize how much people are watching us. But if you're ever approached and you're asked the question, who are you? We see you get up on Sunday morning and go to church. We see that you do things differently in your family, and this is unusual to us. Who are you? Who are you? Matthew sixteen fifteen records perhaps the greatest and most profound question ever asked. And it was asked by Jesus to his disciples, and that question was, Who do you say that I am? And that's the ultimate question that every man, woman, and child must answer. Who do you say that Jesus is, right? That is the million-dollar question. Who do you say that I am? And the answer to that question has eternal consequences. But let's fast forward to those of us who correctly answer that question. Those of us who would say with Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those of us who've repented of our sin and placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for salvation. And we are eternally secure in Christ because of the amazing grace of God. What about us? Who are we? If we are approached and asked perhaps the second most important question ever, who are you? What would we say? Who are you? What would we say? What would you say? Well, we know that 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. You and I need to have an answer to the question. If someone approaches us and they are looking at our life and they're watching our life and they come to us and they say, who are you? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? Well, let me give you just three probing questions that I trust will help to sharpen our answer to that bigger question. If we're asked that question, who are you? And the first question to you and me as a Christian is, are we a seeker of that which is eternal? Are we a seeker of that which is eternal? Because if we are, that will have a profound impact on our answer as to who we really are. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things that we put so much value in will be added unto you. And right before that statement in the same sermon, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you not think that people are watching us? Are we Are we obviously seeking first the kingdom of God? We'll have to answer to the Lord for that. But what are we projecting to the people that are around us? What are we projecting to our family, our immediate family, those people that live with us? What are we projecting to them? Hey, mom and dad want to seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things that the world places so much value in, those things are secondary to us. This is primary. Seek first the kingdom of God, that which is eternal. And so we ask ourselves the question, are we living for the temporal, all these things that are eventually going to burn up? And I remind myself about this all the time. I I have things that, kind of memorabilia that I collected as a youth. These things had the highest preeminence in my life when I was a kid. Our neighbor built me a trophy case. I had a lot of trophies growing up. You know, kids get those if they win the championship or different things like that. So he built me this trophy case, and so I had all my valuables in the trophy case. I mean, it was on my wall in my bedroom. This, all this stuff, I'm like, this is it right here, all this stuff. Well, then I grew up and realized that None of it means anything. It's all going to burn up. And so now you know where it's at? I don't either. (laughs) I have no idea. I think it's in a bin, maybe, with a lid on it, in our garage. At some point, I think we come to the realization that, you know, all the stuff, all the stuff is all going to burn up. All of it. Our house is going to burn up. Our cars are going to burn up. All of our assets are going to burn up. Everything's going to burn up. So what value is it? Well, God gives us things. We need to be good stewards with what we have. But the question is, are we living for that stuff or are we living for the eternal? Remember, we're aliens and strangers here on the earth. We don't live for this life. We live for the next life. It's like saving for the future. 
Second, the second helpful question that'll help us if someone is to approach us as to who we are, I think another good question for us to ask ourselves is, are you contending for the faith? Or are you a mouse about your faith? A quiet Christian, closet Christian. God doesn't give any room for that in the Bible. Jude 3 says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. 2 Corinthians 5.20 reminds us we're to be ambassadors for Christ. Literally pleading with people to turn to faith in Jesus. And then the third question that I think is helpful. Are you being obedient to the clear commands in Scripture? Jesus said in John 14.15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How do we know if we love God? How do we know if we love God? How does God know if we love Him if we keep His commandments? If we've turned to Him in repentance and faith and we keep His commandments, that's how we show God that we love Him. So is keeping the commandments of God your top priority in this life? Because honestly, if somebody were to come to us and ask us, who are you? And we're violating the Scriptures constantly, left and right. We're not even following God's Word. How can we say we're a Christian? You see the point. Are we being obedient to the clear commands of Scripture? 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that the Bible's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to know how to live our lives for God is given to us in the Bible. And so if we have the right answers to those questions, I think we're going to have the right answer to the bigger question, who are you? And ultimately, we are nobody We're nobody who serves a great somebody. So where is our identity? There's no doubt where John the Baptist's identity lied. Certainly wasn't in himself, right? Because the guy lived in a desert until his time had come. It wasn't about his possessions. He didn't have anything. It wasn't about his status. He looked like a homeless man. It wasn't about his family lineage. It was in Jesus Christ and him alone. In Christ alone, his hope was found. And can we sing that? Can we say that? I'm not just giving you pat answers and pat words. Look, Life is short. Some of you who are in your 20s and 30s, and we have a whole bunch of you in the church, and God bless you. Thanks for growing the church. we got so many young babies being born in our church. It's fantastic. Can you say, in Christ alone, my hope is found? Look, I'm at the end, towards the end of my journey on the earth. I want to finish well. I want to honor the Lord with my life. I'm so far from perfect. I struggle with the same things you struggle with. Deal with the same issues you deal with. Constantly going to the Lord, asking Him to forgive me for this and forgive me for that. You know why? Because I want my life to be about Christ alone. It's interesting, we went and watched the David show the other night at Sight and Sound. Any of you seen it? 
fantastic. If you have a chance to go, save your pennies. It's expensive, but it is fantastic. But I think coming out of that, I think the thing that made me think the most was the repeated reference to the fact that David was a man after God's own heart, right? The ones that we went with, they said it often, didn't they? David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And we're sitting there and we're watching David fail. (laughs) I mean, he has an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then to try to cover it up, he kills her husband. And David had all kinds of issues all throughout his life. And, And yet God says, you're a man after my own heart. How can that even be? You know why? Because when David failed, he realized his failure and he turned to the one true living God. That's what Psalm 51 and that prayer of repentance is all about. God knows you're not perfect. He knows I'm not perfect. The thing is, where do we turn when we have failed the Lord? Do we turn back to him or do we waller in our failure? And I think that is really at the heart of what we want to learn today. Who are we? Nobody. We're nobody. Hey, but we serve a great somebody, right? So we want to do that with all the vigor that we have within us and all of the joy and gladness. Life is complicated and messy. We know that. But every day, We can live our lives for Jesus. The Christ, Christos, the anointed one. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you this morning for your amazing truth. Thank you for this man, John the Baptist. We look at his life and we go, wow, he was humble, he was faithful, he was obedient. He's everything that we want to be in this life. He deflected all of the attention off of himself and put it onto his Savior. That's what we want to do. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us. And if there's somebody here today that does not know Christ as their Savior, we pray that today would be the day that you would open their eyes to your truth of the gospel and they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, in whose name we pray, amen.